This is A Matter of Degrees, stories for the climate curious. I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. We are so excited to welcome you all to a special live episode of A Matter of Degrees. Our third season is over, but this is an episode we couldn't resist sharing with you because it features a conversation with the one and only Rebecca Solnit. As folks probably know, Rebecca Solnit is an author, a historian, and a climate activist. Basically, she's who I want to be when I grow up. You still got some work to do there, Leah, so uh, it's good. <laughs> You've got time. Yes, we're always learning on a, <laughs> on a learning journey. Rebecca has written over 20 books. You can see why I want to be here. That's amazing. And her books are on everything from feminism to history to social change and, of course, climate change. I am a huge fan. You might say I am the number one fan of Rebecca Solnit. I am also a really big fan, so I'll just slot in as your deputy in the fan club, Leah. And Rebecca's latest book is a climate anthology, which is called Not Too Late. It was created to really try to help shift the climate story from despair to possibility. And it gets at the tough, vital work of culture change by featuring a really diverse, brilliant set of climate voices from around the world. Not Too Late, the book is part of a larger project led by the co-editors, Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young Lutunataboa. Their idea is not just to make people feel better, but really, as Rebecca says, offer a gateway for people to step through to become fully engaged in climate activism. We need a lot more of those gateways. So I think this is a really exciting project, and it happens to be one that you are personally familiar with, Leah. Yes, I was super honored to write an essay for this book collection, and you'll never guess what I wrote about, Catherine. I'm going to give you three guesses, and the first two don't count. Okay, giant electric tricycles. I mean, it was kind of, yeah, it was sort of about, it was giant electric everything. So, yes, I wrote about clean electricity and electrification because it's kind of like my obsession. Well, I have to say I'm not surprised that that's what you wrote about. And it is one of the critical topics that is in that book and also that you and Rebecca discuss in this episode. And the live episode also features the wonderful Nikayla Jefferson, who you all may remember as our guest correspondent from both season one and season three on the episodes about the stages of Black climate grief and also the journey of Justice 40. And Nikayla also wrote a really moving essay for the book about her experience working on the climate hunger strike back in 2021. I was super honored to get to talk with her and Rebecca at an event at UC Santa Barbara. And I love how the theme of hope is interwoven throughout Not Too Late and comes up in this conversation as well. Even when so much of the climate story is framed around despair, there is still possibility and there is still hope. That's right. You know, the future is not yet decided and every ton of carbon pollution counts. So we need folks to stay engaged to do the work to move this climate movement forward. As we say at the All We Can Save project, healing the climate crisis will take everyone. And with that, let's dive in. It's wonderful to be here. So to kick off our conversation, Rebecca, I have a question for you, which is what was some of the inspiration that took you to writing this anthology and beginning this activist work around Not Too Late? I just want to point out that you and Nikayla wrote some of the anthology, as did uh, 18 other people and my collaborator, Thelma Young Lutuna Tabua. But so 
Thelma and I started talking in 2020 about wanting to do something to address a lot of the climate grief, anxiety, despair, defeatism, doomism, particularly when it felt like it was due to bad facts and bad frameworks. Not only do a lot of people think it's too late, we don't have the solutions, we don't know what to do, nobody cares, nobody's doing anything, all of which are false. And, but they often also have models of how change works, what the, what the nature of power is, what's required of us to make this transition that are inaccurate and often inaccurate um, in ways that are very disempowering. So Selma, who's in her 30s, a uh, longtime climate activist, now based in Fiji, um, currently with the Solutions Project, and I spent a while talking. We started a project, which is just a website and social media um, that we launched in early 2022 called Not Too Late. And this very funny thing happened, which is why there's this book. So a wonderful um, activist was in town who I met, um, uh, Socket Sony with the resilient with Resilience Force, which is organizing the undocumented people who clean up after climate disasters, both to protect them as laborers, um, you know, celebrate their skills and build relationships with the communities they uh, clean up after, particularly when those are anti-immigrant communities, who are often transformed in realizing who's saving them and rebuilding for them. But Socket had worked in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I met him through Annie uh, Leonard, who was the co-director of Greenpeace USA. And I was like, you have to meet Arlie Hochschild, uh, the sociologist at UC Berkeley, who works in, worked in the same community. So I organized this little dinner at Adam and Arlie Hochschild's house. And Adam Hochschild, a great writer in his own right, as well as the husband of the great sociologist, had us do a go-round and talk about who we were and what we were doing. There was seven of us, I think. And I, I went last and I was like, well, I've stopped writing books because I'm trying to be a better climate activist. And Thelma and I are launching this new project next month. And basically the whole group of people just looked at me and said, Rebecca, that needs to be a book. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I think in some weird Protestant way, that's not my normal way. I thought that because I really like writing books and it's the only thing I really know how to do. There was something renunciatory. Um, about not writing books, but books are a very good way to bring information together, to reach people, etc. And I was actually, I'd actually secretly kind of been thinking it. So by 10.30 the next morning, we had an agreement to publish and we're off and running um, because I, ha <laughs> I already had a relationship with Haymarket, the publisher. And it was kind of an amazing project. We Thelma is a true organizer. She came and stayed with me for a week and turned a big sheet of um, core tin I had into a whiteboard because you cannot be an organizer without whiteboards. And uh, so we just wrote on post-its what we thought the book should cover. We wanted to create something very broad and accessible. We felt like there's a ton of books on climate. Most of them are more specialized. Some of them are very technical and not so accessible to newcomers. But often they just focus on one aspect of it. And it didn't feel like there was a really welcoming um, overview guide that both helped equip people with what you might need to know and was not just all discouraging and, doomy and gloomy. And uh, so we divided up what we thought the subject should be. Then we brainstormed about who should write it. And it was really magical. Everyone we asked said yes. Some of them were interviews. Most of them 
wrote or rewrote essays for us. And it ended up just being our dream team of 20 people from around the world, majority women, majority people of color. And one thing that's striking to me, I kind of believe that we need both cultural change and some very pragmatic changes of infrastructure, energy systems, et cetera. And I wanted to ask Leah how she sees the cultural, spiritual, um, kind of social transformations fitting in with the stuff that she's a policy expert on, which is electrifying everything, uh, leaving the age of fossil fuel behind, um, moving to renewable energy. So as Rebecca said, a lot of my work is about the physical transformations that we have to make to infrastructure. So moving to 100% renewable energy as fast as possible, electrifying everything we can. If we do those two things alone, it can actually cut three quarters of current carbon pollution. So climate change can feel really overwhelming. There's all these different pollutants. They come from so many different sectors, but it actually just boils down to clean electricity plus electrification for the vast majority of the solution. Um, so how does that interface with the more cultural change and the spiritual change? Well, we're seeing an example of it right now with the gas stoves debate. So for a while now, I don't know, a few couple dozen of us have been going on about how gas stoves are really bad for your health because gas stoves are really bad for your health. And we were going along talking about this. I went to Congress. I literally said it in front of Ted Cruz and, you know, said it on TV, blah, blah, blah. Nobody was really picking up on it except my sisters who watched me say these things and they were like, oh my God, my gas stove is terrible. I need to get rid of it. So clearly it had these seeds of change that people were looking at their appliances differently. Um, but suddenly, right, there was this huge breakthrough cultural moment where the uh, Consumer Protection Safety Commission, uh, Commissioner Trumpka, said that he was looking into maybe restricting gas stoves because they're really bad for your health, just like cigarettes. And it created this huge cultural moment. There were something like 23,000 news articles written on the subject of gas stoves, literally, since the beginning of this year. Crazy. So this sort of niche conversation that a lot of us were having had this huge cultural moment. And if you look at where gas stoves exist, they are in California and New York primarily, where mostly lefties live, you may know. And so it's an interesting thing where if we can start to look at the machines in our lives that run on fossil fuels and realize that they're not only terrible for the planet, they're also really bad for our health. I mean, the latest research is that when you burn gas in your home, you are putting out formaldehyde, benzene, those are both carcinogens. You're putting out levels of nitrogen, nitrous oxide that is way higher than EPA standards. So I think it starts to get people to ask different questions around what are these machines in my life, whether that's the car in my driveway, the stove in my kitchen, the furnace in my garage, what are these machines and are these the machines that I have to keep using or can there be different machines that do 99% or actually are better than the alternative, save me money, don't poison me and my family members? You know, that's some of the cultural change pieces that I think we're on the precipice of. And what I would say is that I'm not interested in a conversation around like sacrifice I'm actually interested in a conversation around abundance. I now have a fully electrified home and it's awesome. It's like really nice. People came over last night and it was really nice. So like you don't have to have a crappy house and sit with your big sweater in the dark, okay? Like you can do that if you want, but you don't have to. You can have your nice fancy stuff. You can just be electric. Okay, and all this talk of visions of the future, um, I would like to ask both of you, 
What are your sober dreams of the future? And where do you turn to for inspiration? Who or what has helped you reimagine the future? And how have previous visions of the future been challenged? And here I am particularly talking about our favorite vision of the future in the United States, which is the American dream. So yeah, what does it look like in the context of climate crisis? You know, I think people talk a lot about like leisure time and how organizing was actually necessary to get it so that we had a two day weekend, right? This was organizing of workers. And I think that how we view consumption and work in the present day is very oriented around, you know, I have to work so that I can make money so that I can buy stuff. And it's not a cycle that is actually making people very happy. And all of us are in this cycle too, but it's not a deep kind of meaning or profound wholeness. And I think it would be interesting to the degree that we actually integrated like low carbon ways of being that aren't as consumptive. So things like hiking, for example, you know, these ways of being in nature and being in relation to other beings, living beings, plants, animals, that aren't actually consumptive, that are not extractive, that um, can be actually the most fulfilling thing. Like, I'm sure people here go hiking and backpacking, right? And I know Eric Smith does, who I can see in the audience. And you know, that is, when you do those kinds of things, I imagine people would agree with me, it's like a kind of feeling in your body that is so deeply healing and is such a profound sense of peace that you do not get from staring at your phone, for example, or a computer, right? And so getting people out in nature and actually experiencing life, I think actually makes us more fulfilled. And the current system is not really enabling us or supporting us in doing that. It's really keeping us inside these sort of phone-oriented, modular ways, right? So, Rebecca, what do you think the American Dream 2.0 is? I, whose dream was it is always a question. It wasn't the indigenous American dream. It wasn't the queer American dream. And it was something we were told that we wanted, whether we wanted or not, and that would make us happy, whether or not it was making people happy. And we're constantly told capitalism wants us to be kind of miserable and isolated and believe that our satisfactions will all come through private life and more stuff. And I think a lot of our joys are going to come through not just private life, which matters, but also public life, feeling like we're members of a community, um, a social community, a human community, a beyond human community with a natural community, which with, for good reason either people feel alienated from and that they're not connected to it or guilty about because they are connected but they feel bad about what we're doing to it. The best thing about the U.S. is people have always been reimagining the future. Like what if you could live without monarchy? What if all men were created equal? Take us another 150 years to get around like what if women were people? Um, you know, and, um, and some of the other permit, you know, another 80 years after that to whether, you know, black people had certain un inalienable rights. But, um, but there's always been dreamers that it could be, you know, it could be different. One of the amazing people in this book, Adrian Marie Brown, says all organizing is science fiction because you've decided to try and make something that doesn't exist yet in the world. So I've been inspired by people who've changed the world. And it doesn't always look like people think. And women in the 19th century said, why should marriage be 
such a profoundly unequal relationship in which a man gains power over another human being and a woman loses um, her agency, her name, her financial and bodily autonomy, etc. And, you know, and it's now very normal for marriage to be essentially a relationship between equals. There's a wonderful thing. So the eternally Nuji um, Terry Gross once asked Gloria Steinem why she didn't get married till her 60s. And Gloria Steinem, without missing a beat, said, first I had to reinvent the institution of marriage. And uh, so it's not only the dreamers, but the realization of their dreams. I mean, I'm the same age as the Berlin Wall, but as I always like to say, I moisturize. <laughs> the Berlin Wall did not moisturize and look at it now. <laughs> Actually, at one of these events, somebody gave me a piece of it, which I'm very excited by, but it was very rough and rather concrete-like. And um, But, you know, I was born into a world in which women were unequal by both law and culture, and that was completely normal and acceptable. The Ivy Leagues did not accept women and... Uh, so, you know, um, Jim Crow was a law of the land in the South. The civil rights movement was underway, but most of its achievements in the Voting Rights Act were ahead. I'm a year older than Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's landmark book that really started to give the public a language and a concept to think about the environment in ways that um, industrialized settle, settler colonialists hadn't yet, that that everything is connected to everything else. What, you know, you put pesticides out to kill one kind of bug, it will kill the birds that eat them. It will then, it will get into the water, it will get into the food, it will get into us. That you can't have a world of isolated, alienated objects. You always have a world of systems. I was born into a world where to be queer was to be treated as criminal, mentally ill, or both. And, um, so I've not just seen people who had beautiful dreams, but seen so many of those dreams realized in our times. And that gives me the confidence to imagine that the world could be radically different because the world is radically different than the one I was born into. I more and more understand that hope is related to memory, despair to amnesia. I often meet people who think nothing ever changes. And if you have any memory over you know, a decade or more, you don't have to be that old you see that things change radically, and um, the bigger your time frame, the more you see change. One of the things I really enjoyed doing for the book, not sure how well I think that chapter came out, but was 2073 is unimaginable, and what will it look like? Who knows? Hopefully we'll have done everything the climate requires of us, but a lot of people can't believe that we can make a world so profoundly different but all we need to do is look at 1973. The world of 2023 that we're in in this very moment is utterly inconceivable in 1973. One of the fun things about 1973 is a lot of, a lot of the prevailing attitudes is like, oh, the civil rights movement really fell apart, didn't make any, you know, isn't making any more ground. The black civil rights movement was not doing great in 1973, but the indigenous rights movement, the Chicano rights movement, the women's movement, queer liberation movements, and the disability rights movements were all really starting to happen in a big way in the early 70s. But still, it was such a different world. Indigenous and black and feminists and queer activists who had big ideas that it could all be different 
But the fact that so many of them have been realized, not perfectly, as you have noticed, we're neither in paradise nor nirvana, but we are in a radically different place than we were before. And I find that really gives me fuel to imagine that that process has not suddenly ground to a halt and we cannot possibly change anything. And so much of my job is to try and infect people with that view. Um, so the, the next thing which you actually mentioned in passing is all three of us practice in the Buddhist tradition. Um, we have meditation practices, we've gone on retreats, um, you know, we're, I don't know, I don't know if you'd call yourself a Buddhist, I would. Um, and so I want to talk about that. How does that, how does that practice relate to our activism? What do you guys think the relationship is there? Obviously there's a tradition of engaged Buddhism, right? Like that goes through various traditions. Um, a relationship between the spiritual practice and activism. But how does that actually work in your own life? And Nikayla, I want to start with you. Having a spiritual practice and understanding the inner journey and the journey of the self has really made me reflect on uh, the journey of society um, and, yeah, what it looks like to come of age as a human species. Um, so what's given me a lot of hope recently, like related to this, is you know, we're all so young as people. Like, our species has not been around that long compared to everything else, compared to deep time. So thinking about that, maybe we're at the very beginning of our story, um, and maybe this crisis is a profound opportunity to undergo, like, a, a rapid shift in our conscious mind um, to change in a way that, yeah, maybe we're, maybe we're meant to as people. Um, and that makes me feel very excited and lucky to be alive in this moment that I get to participate in that kind of change um, that, I, that I feel that I'm able to with my practice. Um, but related to, uh, personally, re related to my activism, um, I came into meditation um, and the mindfulness practice right after the 2020 election. Um, my anxiety was so, I had such a panic attack that I ended up in the emergency room um, after the 2020 election. So at my grandma's urging, I started a mindfulness practice, um, you know, to, to help with the anxiety. But then it became a lot more to me than that, than just uh, trying to make myself feel better um, in a time of heightened panic. And I guess it allowed me to, like, to kind of glimpse uh, the inner world and the journey of the self and put that on the background of the climate crisis and it all feels much more meaningful, I think, for that reason. Um, and I think along that line, too, um, knowing like freedom internally, I think, has made me really aware of how externally I am not free. Um, and externally, uh, I am oppressed. And I think... It's made me angry and very sad, but I think gives me like a new kind of determination to participate in great change. And I think along that line in the practice, um, having an open heart and feeling like a hole in the flute for love to flow in and out has, uh, yeah, giving me an acute awareness of my connection to all the other life, to, you know, you two including, <laughs> um, on this planet. And I think feeling that love also really steals me in a determination um, to work on its behalf. So 
that has been my personal journey um, with Buddhism and climate activism. And I think on a larger scale, thinking about the social movement, like social movements in the past have, you know, for at least for the last 100 years, um, had some kind of spiritual grounding. And I think that allows organizers to work out of a place of love and work with a lot of faith and feel grounded in something that's bigger than themselves. And from my perspective right now in the climate movement, that really seems to be lacking. Um, and I think that worries me a bit of how will, how will we continue to go on um, if as a collective we're not grounded in something greater than ourselves. Thank you so much. I love talking about being grounded in love for activism. I do think some people are more motivated, and you can really tell the difference between people who are motivated by love or hate, even if they officially share the same goals. It has how they pursue them can have really different impacts. So for me, first of all, I have to say, I don't have a meditation practice alone. I'm a really bad at sitting alone. I'm a, so I'm technically a bad Buddhist. I will wear that label with something, if not pride. Although I did have a very funny moment where a close friend of mine, Janine, who lived at San Francisco Zen Center for five years and has had a deep practice, I once said to her, you know, I'm not really practicing anymore. She looked at me and said, Rebecca, everything is practice. Meaning that the way you eat your lunch, the way you relate to the other people on the bus with you, the way you teach your classes, the way you, you know, clean your plate, all those things are opportunities for practice. And Buddhism has a lot of really useful ideas for me and that we get from other arenas as well. For example, non-separation. And one of the things I find really exciting about this moment, and I think I spend more time being excited than terrified, although both of them have some resemblances around destabilization, is I see ideas coming from science, from non-Western um, cultures and from the indigenous world to rectify some of the gr grave errors of sort of industrial capitalism. And one of the most crucial ones is that everything is connected to everything else. Buddhism has some beautiful and important versions of that as not just a moral, but a sort of philosophical and practical recognition. Um, there's a wonderful book by the Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron called Comfortable with Uncertainty. Buddhism also recognizes that everything is constantly in change. You can't cling to one version of how things are. And, um, and I find it useful also, and I've been writing about hope for 20 years now. It began when I saw how hopeless people became when the war broke out in Iraq 20 years ago. And, um, you know, and I find that both optimists and pessimists want to think they know what's going to happen and form their ideas around it. And I find a kind of non-attachment to outcome that's also a recognition we don't know what's going to happen. We can participate in making it happen that I find very helpful. But truly, I find that people make up ideas about what the, you know, that and so much of climate doom is that this is exactly what's going to happen. And it's like, so you feel hopeless and you also feel completely in command of, you know, the future. How does that work together? And, uh, you know, and it's like they craft, a, they, they, ta they take the authority to craft a version of reality that then renders them helpless, which is very paradoxical and also a real 
constant problem. So I find that the comfortableness with uncertainty incredibly valuable. And then finally, another core Buddhist teaching, compassion for all beings, a way of being in the world that's based on, on doing no harm, on compassion, on awareness, which in a sense is your emotional, spiritual, and imaginative connection to go with the physical, everything is connected to everything else. So I find it not only incredibly useful, but incredibly aligned with um, a lot of other things that are coming, that have come. And I was talking about how much the world has changed in my lifetime. And these things are so much more present in our culture, um, non-West, you know, ideas, Asian um, spiritual and philosophical ideas and indigenous worldviews that are also about responsibility and non-separation from the natural world. And science itself is changing so excitingly to recognize more and more, not only a world of absolute inseparable interconnectedness, but also a world that nature is basically socialist, not capitalist. It's not driven primarily by competition, but by symbiosis, mutuality, cooperation, et cetera, which is a much more beautiful worldview. And so there's a lot of things converging, I think, to really make a new and better culture. And when I look at how radically things are changing, I sometimes think we're doing nothing less than dismantling an old civilization that harmed everybody and marginalized most of us and building something better in its place, whether it will outstrip you know, the new authoritarianism and white supremacy and climate chaos, whether we'll win remains to be seen, but nothing's worth trying more. Are you going to add to that, Leah? You, you also have a practice. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's funny. My undergrad was in Buddhism. I don't talk about this a lot, but I studied Buddhism academically in undergrad 20 years ago. And... Um, I wasn't raised religious, so it was kind of hard. Like, I had to study it rather than doing it, you know? It's not like I knew how to do that. But eventually, I found my way to practice. And, you know, they talk about the fruits of practice, right? Compassion, loving kindness, joy, that kind of stuff. Well, the real pinnacle is called equanimity. That's when you're not, if you're in a boat, you're not going over in either direction. And my whole personality is always going in one direction or another fairly intensely. And so I think building that stillness and anchor that is not as movable to outside forces is something that um, I do not feel at all I have mastered. I'm still a boat that's going in every direction, um, being pushed around by the wind. But I'm a little steadier than I used to be. And I think that that really helps with the work because... You know, in Buddhism, they talk about the eight worldly winds. These are like praise and blame, uh, success and failure, pain and uh, pleasure, and uh, fame and disrepute. Basically, these good and bad things that happen in your life. And they happen to all of us. Um, but, you know, as the activism has become a huge part of my life and has really taken over in terms of the amount of public-facing stuff I'm doing, it can be really intense, the winds that are coming at you. And so I have found having a practice and an anchor helps me stay steadier in the work. Um, so that's been a really good thing. Not, again, that I'm enlightened. I'm certainly not. I haven't done that. But even just enough sitting, honestly, five to ten minutes a day, my friends. You can just start with that. So, Or just wash your dishes mindfully if you're zen. 
Rebecca, I think you get to ask the next question. I do, and I just wanted to mention that Roshi Joan Halifax, a renowned Buddhist teacher, is one of the people in the book. And one of the things I really like about her, some of the response I see to climate is a sense that we're very fragile and we cannot deal with difficult things. We cannot respond to loss, uncertainty, etc. And she's 80, she's tough as nails, and she has a real sense that human beings are basically tough. But I also think that in Buddhism you take, you know, a lot of people outside think that the goal of Buddhists is to get enlightened, you know, to get yourself off the wheel of birth and death and suffering. But the Bodhisattva vow is you vowed to be reincarnated until all suffering is ended, that you're in the struggle, you're here for it. And um, which is also an idea that you're here to do stuff, that you're tough, that you have something to contribute. And I love that sense, and I do see you in a lot of the climate the sort of difficult emotion around climate, often a sense of personal frailty. And I think there's a lot of things in this culture that tell us that we're very frail, nothing bad should have ever happened to us, and if something bad happened, we're irrevocably damaged, you know, and of course we're organic. Organic things often heal from damage. If you've ever seen a tree with, you know, the bark grows over an ax bite or something, if you've ever had an, and it's always amazing to me, sometimes I get a cut and then I'm like, oh, it's not there any, you know, it's better today. Now it's, the skin's closing up. Oh, it's gone. And um, so that toughness also, I think it, Buddhism is partly about being tough. So this is a much more prosaic question. There was a, a, a slightly ridiculous magazine article in a major New York magazine that took me and other climate journalists to task. It was by somebody who, I, so far as I could tell, was brand new to climate we thought that nobody had been told that climate change, I don't know, how many of you know that climate change is actually really bad? And, um, and that we were unduly sunny, which I think really comes from two things. One of which is, you know, when you get a terrible medical diagnosis, you have cancer or some other disease, your first reaction is shock, dismay. If you've forgotten you were mortal, you might suddenly remember it. And often people are really flattened at the beginning and then they're like, okay, how do I, what are my options? What's the best treatment? What's the prognosis? What's the outcome? Let's do these difficult things that might get me through this. And I feel like people I know who've been in climate for a while are often like that, like, yeah, we know it's really bad, we're doing these things. But what's interesting also about the article is its position was that everything's gotten worse since 2018. I'll remind you, uh, Bolsonaro was the president of Brazil, um, Scott Morrison, another terrible climate villain, was the prime minister of Australia. Oh, I think there was a president in America, too, back then. Was there? What was his name? I can't remember. I, the former, it, it, former yeah, guy? It escapes me. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really like, what have you seen change in the last five years, whether it's um, public imagination, cultural? I know, Leah, you're totally monitoring all the practical changes. How have things changed in the last five years? And um, what do you see that's happened? Well, the really exciting thing is that we have a big climate law in this country, thanks in no small part to some people in this room, including Sunrise activists like Nikayla and Nauru, who's in the audience. And um, Leah Stokes, who is huge <laughs> for that. Yeah. So Santa Barbara, as a place, punched above its weight when it came to climate activism, as per usual, right? We love to think we're like the epicenter of climate here, so we can take some credit. So, you know, and... The Inflation Reduction Act, I loved, Rebecca in this book made a, made a list of climate-like victories, which is awesome to read, I highly recommend it. A lot of them are indigenous-led activists, like, you know, um, 
blocking the Dakota Access Pipeline, things like Keystone. So there's lots of really cool stuff. And the last one in the list is the Inflation Reduction Act, which I was like, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have felt that it was flawed and not enough and it had some bad stuff in it, et cetera. But, you know, that's in part how the left functions. Like, we had this massive victory and it was flawed and imperfect and everything else. And we focus on the, the things that aren't great as opposed to, like, the 95%, which was really exciting. And the things that are happening, like, every single week if you're paying attention, like, oh, my God, there's a new solar factory being built in, like, Oh my gosh, Joe Manchin with, you know that guy, Senator Manchin? Um, he was at a, a ribbon cutting with Secretary Granholm, Department of Energy, like last week for like a new factory, clean energy factory in West Virginia. And he was going on and on about how great the Inflation Reduction Act was. And you're like, have you met yourself? But he's a weather vane. He blows here and there. But that's what's happening. The amount of jobs and investment and how transformative it's going to be in this country, I just don't think we fully understand it yet. So that makes me really excited. Um, even though it's flawed and imperfect and da 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 I don't know. I'm just really excited about it. I think it's going to be a really big change. What about you, Nikayla? You helped pass that law, too, so. I did, uh, yes. I'm going to strike this in the book. Um, yeah, like, well, I think it was either you or Matto took a class in 2018, uh, environmental policy, but how difficult it was to marry the environment and jobs in the United States. Um, and the, the Green New Deal, BBB, the inflation. Uh, BBB is Build Back Better. Build Back Better, yes, which, which died, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but while it was alive, you know, did a, did a similar thing. Um, but I mean, I think that's the biggest change I've seen is marrying uh, climate and jobs and that it's actually not a trade-off. Um, that feels like a massive accomplishment and a huge change in the way we, we think about the environment and um, how to build it better. Um, but I would say, I think the biggest change that I've seen since 2018, and I think there's a good and the hard side to this, um, is consumption. Um, and I was actually reading the, the Hamburg climate report that came out, I think in March, um, that outlined the 10 social drivers of climate crisis and um, the top two that we are not doing so well on are corporate response um, and consumption. But in that, I think, while our, where we're currently at with consumption feels really hard, um, the good side of it to me feels like there is a recognition that we need to make massive change very quickly in the way that we consume and extract. But I think in the recognition that our consumption is a problem, I think that really opens up the question of like, how does it stop? Um, how do we stop? And why do we do it in the first place? And it feels like young people particularly are very ripe to ask this question. And while I have not been on TikTok recently, um, I know there's like, uh, there's quite a few influencers online who are asking these questions um, and looking at, yeah, what does a culture look like that consumes less? Because I think that's a big piece of what we have to shift in the coming years. And thinking about like why we consume, yeah, the system, you know, encourages, incentivizes, sometimes forces us to consume. Um, but I think again, among like young people, and I think there's a cultural shift towards more, uh, I think mental health awareness and looking at um, the psychological reasons why we want to consume, like what's going on inside, like why is a lifestyle like this uh, so desirable, um, like, you know, filling a void of some kind. And 
yeah, I think what really gives me hope around like the cultural shift is that the people around me are really eager to ask these questions um, and really begin to investigate why we have such an intense desire to consume. I'll tell you one hopeful consumption fact about young people. They're drinking oat milk a lot more than cow's <laughs> milk. No, it's true. Cow's <laughs> milk is very unpopular with Gen Z people. Did you know this? It's oh, true. We also uh, love public transit. So They a, love public transit. Those Gen Z kids, they're the future. Yeah. All right, Nikhil, you get the next one. Um, it's about healing. Oh, healing. Like alluding to the, to the earlier question, uh, to the, my earlier statement about kind of our core wounds as a people. Um, and how it's kind of led to this current moment of like crisis on all fronts, you know, thinking about, uh, yeah, what does it take seriously um, for us to begin to heal? There's a wonderful passage in the Dear Sugar letters by um, Cheryl Strayed where somebody's boyfriend says to them, but we're all broken. It's the human condition. You know, and I worry sometimes that people think there's some state, you know, Buddhism has an interesting intersection with this for people who want to become trouble-free and enlightened and safe. But, you know, is there a state of being unwounded? Mm. And what is that? There's a lot of things now making life really difficult. And I think there's also a lot of loneliness and isolation that creates a lot of angst and that, one of my visions is that what we need, essentially, we're constantly told now that we live in an age of abundance and we can't do all those things that climate crisis requires of us because that would take away our beautiful abundance, you know, which is usually just that we have lots of consumer culture stuff for those of us who are middle class and above. And I think you can invert that to say we live in an age of terrible scarcity, scarcity of clean air, clean water, scarcity of hope and confidence in the society around us scarcity of sense of safety, of connectedness to each other and to nature. And what the climate crisis requires of us could create an age of abundance, not necessarily having more stuff per se, but like better public transit, better parks, healthier nature, healthier oceans, uh, um, better food, better, um, better communities, better confidence about the future, etc. So I feel like part of what we need to do is change the framework from does our abundance come from being isolated but having a lot of stuff, whether it's money or goods, or does our abundance come from being in a, you know, our deep connections to everything around us? Because I just think that we live in profound scarcity and that the fossil fuel industry creates a lot of that scarcity, including scarcity of hope and scarcity of health. So that might be another way to cast it rather than wounds and healing. With that, but that's sort of along the same lines. I thought it was very on point. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot that the 20th century created a lot of wreckage, and a lot of it was driven by fossil fuels. If you think even about plastics, it's a huge problem right now. Plastics are made out of petrochemicals. They're a fossil fuel product. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, and they're now in our bloodstreams. They're in our oceans. They're everywhere, right? And they're bad for us. They create. They have really bad health impacts, hormonal, cancerous, et cetera. So we did a lot of stuff in the 20th century, which we told ourselves were awesome, and turns out had huge secondary effects. Um, you know, I don't, better living through plastics, right? Better living through chemistry. Like, this is a whole rhetoric that turned out to be really false. And so I feel that the 21st century, which we're still at the beginning of in some ways, 
is an opportunity to heal those wounds. And it's a Pandora's box. The plastics don't go back in the container very easily, right? Like, they're microplastics everywhere. But it's an opportunity to actually have a system of regeneration and healing and have people work in jobs to clean up the harms, whether that's pesticides, plastics, fossil fuels of the 20th century. You know, this is what the idea of the Civilian Climate Corps really was about. This was Sunrise's big idea of they wanted $60 billion. I think it was actually more originally, but they're supposed to get $60 billion to create a workforce program, sort of like the Peace Corps, but in the United States to clean up, you know, old mines or do restoration, um, you know, deal with uh, landscapes that are at risk for wildfires, et cetera. And it was a vision that people's productive work could actually be oriented towards societal healing, not just towards societal harm. And I think the movement around care work too, like for example, Adi Barkin, who also lives in Santa Barbara, his activist work around um, giving people access to healthcare, home health workers, you know, those are jobs that if we were to fund at a societal level would be low carbon healing jobs that actually create meaning for people, that allow people to live in their communities and homes with dignity. And, you know, that is a view of the future that doesn't require the pollution and gives people meaningful work um, that's well paid and actually heals. So I think that that really is a vision that we could have for the future that is exactly as Rebecca was saying, not one of scarcity, but actually one of abundance and really centers healing um, in that kind of way. So I think we are getting near to, near to the end here, but we still have time to ask each other a few more questions. So I don't know if we want to do a lightning round here, Rebecca. I, Nikayla's and mine, uh, Nikayla's what gives you hope? And my question about hope versus fears is motivating people to do the climate work, I think fit together really well. And um, so can I throw both of them out and we can all take it on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Is it hope or fear that more motivates people or which or why or how? Um, yeah, I'll speak to the hope or fear question. I would say that fear feels like running from something. Like, you know, like the dark woods are encroaching on you. Like there's like a monster coming at your heels. Um, running frantically in the dark, and if you stop, something bad's gonna happen. Um, but hope feels like running to something. Um, and it's a, it's a joyous occasion. Um, and sometimes you can run, or sometimes you can jog, or sometimes you can walk, or you can stop and rest for a while. I admire the poppies on the side of the trail. <laughs> um, but I think for me, like, I know some people can work out of fear, but for me, I really must like work out of hope. Like it doesn't feel like an option, um, and I think that's also really key to my to the spiritual practice too. Is working from a place of hope and not fear. Like fear feels like a, a wall between my heart and the outside world, um, but working from a place of hope like allows it to stay open and to really work from a place of love, um, and firmly believe that uh, the next world we're going to build must be built out of love. That is beautiful, and thank you. And what about you, Leah? Well, I'm thinking, so Varshini Prakash, the, one of the co-founders of Sunrise and the current executive director, she did this interview with Ezra Klein a few years ago where she talked about how most of the people who had founded Sunrise were motivated by, like, fear. They were, like, undergrads. They discovered this climate crisis thing. They were like, oh, my God, we're all going to die. And, and that really motivated them to 
dedicated their lives towards climate activism. But when they were trying, when they were workshopping their story and trying to figure out how they would recruit more people to the movement, they quickly discovered that what had motivated them was not what motivated normal people. And so sometimes for activists, we may come to things through fear or maybe we're super anxious people. I don't know. That's why we need to meditate all the time. <laughs> um, but normal people, they don't necessarily feel that way. And so I think we have to recognize that what might work for one group of people is not necessarily what works for others. And in my own practice and activism around climate, um, I tend to be fairly hopeful. Somebody yesterday called me like Mrs. Hope or something, or Ms. I'm not a Mrs. A Ms. Hope or something, um, which I thought was funny. So I tend to feel like there's optimism, there's technologies that we have that we can use. So yeah, I tend to be hopeful. And I mean, clearly you wrote a book called Not Too Late, Rebecca. So I imagine you're, and you also wrote a book called Hope in the Dark. So I imagine you are motivated by hope too. I'm transparent on that front. <laughs> so the last question we're going to talk about, um, this is always the question that I'm sure all three of us get asked, so I wanted to talk about it, which is what can I do? You know, you climate change, overwhelming, oh my God, I want to do something, and that's amazing, and you probably have a hunch that plastic straws is not going to cut it. So what can I do? How do you guys answer that? I just want to mention that activism is actually improvisational. Like, it's not just, okay, I give you a cookie cutter answer and that's what you can do. Um, just today, somebody tagged me on Twitter and said they were quitting their aerospace engineering job to become a solar engineer and they were like inspired. I was like, cool, that's great, you know, but like, I can't tell each and every one of you to go become a solar engineer. It's improvisational, it's based on your own life and your own moment. Um, but I'd love to hear, Michaela, how do you answer that question of what can I do for other people, for yourself? It's a tough time in the movement right now. Uh, and what can I do? I mean, I think a few years ago it would be to like join an organization. Um, and I still believe that to be true. But I think it's also taking inventory of your own skills and gifts and abilities and really looking at what could my best contribution be to this fight um, with who I was born as? What am I able to give? And I feel like that's probably the best place for most people to start. The climate activist Bill McKibben is often asked, what's the most impactful thing I can do as an individual? And he just always says, stop being an individual, meaning join something, become part of something. And I agree with Nikayla, not everybody was born to join in a group. But I think one of the pitfalls I often see that the fossil fuel industry has pushed is to think of us as individuals and all we can do is be virtuous individuals that we can recycle and have very tiny carbon footprints. But even if everybody, all of us became very virtuous and had tiny carbon footprints, we actually need profound system change and that I think involves um, being part of something larger, and there's a lot of ways to do that. I think voting matters, um, supporting progressive climate candidates matters, donating if you have resources. And there's a lot of times people act like giving money is not real activism, but let me tell you, movements need money, and if you work hard to do X and then you give, you know, a piece of what you earned to something else, you're giving your labor. Your labor may have been as a pediatrician or a janitor or a teacher or something, but it's still your labor that you're contributing. 
And I feel like everybody has something to give. And one of the things that's lovely in this book is that the amazing climate activist, Marianne Hegler, based in New Orleans, wrote an essay called, "What Essentially, What Can I Do?, talking about the fact that everybody has some, um, it's actually called, here's where you come in, that everybody has some gifts, everybody has something that they want to do, everybody has a place in it. It's not always easy and obvious to discover. Some people love ringing strangers' doorbells. I know I do it occasionally, and I find it kind of petrifying and intense. At, um, so I think it's like figuring there's a lot of different things that need to happen. I also think people can work at all scales. Often people think the, the only, from outside, think the only change that's happening is national. And if we're failing nationally, but things are happening at this internationally, they're happening at the state level, they're happening at the level of regions, cities. Sometimes you're just going to be the person who's going to get solar panels to cover the parking in your high school, or you're going to, you know, are you a person who wants to make things happen, like renewables, or stop things like pipelines and fracking from happening? There's so much that needs to be done is both the good news and the bad news, and there's kind of something for everyone. I think that's so true. And my answer to this question is take an inventory of the fossil fuel machines in your life. You may not know this, but you may be in relationship with fossil fuel machines. Your car, your furnace, your stove. Oh, even the hedge trimmer. That might be running on fossil fuels too and make a plan for how you're going to make those machines run on electricity instead. Because electricity is cleaner across the board, doesn't matter, your car's already cleaner if you run it on electricity than fossil fuels. It's like 100% clean in Vermont, and even in Hawaii where they burn oil for their electricity, it's still cleaner. That's how efficient the electric machine is, don't worry. Um, and then you're like, oh my God, the mining, guess what? The mining for an electric vehicle, if it's this big, the mining for for electric vehicle, right? So the gas-powered car, the mining associated with that, because you may know you have to dig up the oil every single time you fill the tank. I don't know if you realize that. It disappears into the air, so it's easy to forget. But you're you're mining every single time you fill up your car. So, you know, think about the machines in your life that are fossil fuel powered and make a plan to change them. And if you don't know how to do that, Rewiring America, this organization I work with, rewiringamerica.org, is going to launch a whole calculator this summer to help you plan how to do that. And there's also now money that helps you do that too. And if you don't own these machines because you're a student, you're, well, guess what? Maybe your parents own some, maybe your grandparents own some, maybe your neighbors do. Go bug some people. That sounds fun too, right? Go, go lobby some people. And then you can figure out how to change machines that are bigger. Like how could we electrify the schools in Santa Barbara? This is something I'm currently obsessing over. Those are machines that run on fossil fuels. Now they've got solar panels, which is awesome. Laura Caps was very involved with that along with others. Love her. Um, how do we make those machines run on electricity in the schools? Or maybe, you know, the campus. There's now a decarbonization study here and I'm sure some people are a part of it. How do we make the machines on this campus run on electricity? So clean electricity plus electrification is actually a solution that we can deploy that's cost effective today. And that guess what? There's one billion machines in America alone that run on fossil fuels, less than one billion Americans, which means we can all adopt a couple machines as our personal quest. Um, so I would really encourage people to do that. Um, but that's not the only thing you can do. You can do lots more. Please, if you'd like to stick around, we're going to be signing books in the back at the Chaucer's 
book stand. Please support our amazing local bookstore, which I know you all love. And just thank you so much for joining us. So please join me in thanking Rebecca and Nikayla for being here tonight. Leah, thank you for bringing us that wonderful conversation. I could really sense the joy that you, Rebecca, and Nikayla were cultivating together on stage all the way from right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Travels across the country. Joy is a renewable resource. (laughs) And I hope that this gets a lot more folks to pick up this wonderful new book, Not Too Late, edited by Rebecca and Thelma Young, Lutonatiboa. It was such a fun event. You know, we had three generations of climate activists on stage all at once. Rebecca made this joke that it was like first act, Nikayla, second act, me, and third act, Rebecca, which is funny because it's Bill McKibben's new group oh, called Third Act, yeah. which yeah, Rebecca's yeah, yeah. part of. So it's just, you know, inside <laughs> climate movement joke there. So, <laughs> And Rebecca even quoted Bill at the end. And I wanted to lift that up because I do think as he is so often doing, really hits the nail on the head. That the best thing to do on climate as an individual is to be less of an individual, to join with others in this work. Right. So much of this is about collective action, right? And remembering that we can join together and still change the course of history. And it's not too late. We can still tackle the climate crisis and build a thriving, just, carbon-free society for everyone. We have so many of the solutions we need, whether that's my favorite, the heat pump or an electric vehicle or an e-bike, right? New solar panels and wind turbines. We have so much that we can do to cut carbon pollution. Bring on that electrified future. Transformational change is needed, but all of us together can definitely be part of making it happen. A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Dr. Leah Stokes. And me, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. We are a production made in partnership with Frequency Media, the 2035 Initiative at UC Santa Barbara, and the All We Can Save Project. Thanks to our funders and supporters who make this show possible. Energy Foundation, Northlight Foundation, McKnight Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and the 11th Hour Project. If you're digging the show, please hop on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give us a five-star rating or leave us a review. Ina Garkusha is our supervising producer, and Michelle Corey is our executive producer. Script writing, fact-checking, communication, and production support by Daniela Schulman and Kristen Palmstrom. Live recording by Bent Meigen and Gary Atkins. Matthew Ernest Filler is our lead audio engineer, mixer, and sound designer. Rose Wong designed our show art. Sean Marquand composed our theme song. Find us online at DegreesPod.com and at DegreesPod on Twitter. And for the very first time ever, we're now on YouTube. So check out our channels to hear more stories for the climate curious. 